All right. Welcome back to Rockford Reading Daily. We are beginning a new piece of literature, and I'm not sure what episode this is going to be, but we're starting to read The End of Policing by Alex Vitale. Uh, we've started this podcast series off by reading Have Black Lives Ever Matter by Mami Abu-Jamal. We then began reading Race Matters by Cornell West. We followed that up by reading Citizens, Cops, and Power by Steve Herbert. We followed that up by reading an essay on civil disobedience by Henry Thoreau. That was followed up by Women, Race, and Class by Angela Y. Davis, which was then followed up by High Risers by Ben Austin. And also we read Letter from Birmingham Jail by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And I believe before you get to these episodes, you will have listened to us read Freedom is a Constant Struggle by Angela Y. Davis as well. And what I'm hoping that all of these different pieces of literature are doing the job of is painting a, a broad picture or painting the bigger picture of the issues of police terrorism, mass incarceration and racial injustice and how many other social issues and social injustices exist underneath that umbrella and help to perpetuate those three specific issues. And I think that each piece of literature that we've read sort of tackles a different aspect of those things and the end of policing tackles the aspect of police terrorism in a in a very unique and uncomparable light, in my opinion, uh, when contrasting it with other things that I've read. I think that this is one of the books where if you are new to the issues of police terrorism, if you're trying to understand why people are saying things like defund the police, abolish the police, uh, this book does a great job of, of highlighting that. And I've read this book multiple times. Each time that I read it, I take something new away from it. And I hope that you can take something away from it as well. Chapter one, the limits of police reform. Tamir Rice and John Crawford were both shot to death in Ohio because an officer's first instinct was to shoot. Anthony Hill outside Atlanta, Antonio Zambrano Montez in Pascal, California, and Jason Harris in Dallas were all shot to death by police who misunderstood their mental illness. Oscar Grant in Oakland, Akai Gurley in Brooklyn, and Eric Harris in Tulsa were all shot, quote, by mistake, end quote, because officers didn't use enough care in handling their weapons. North Charleston, South Carolina, police officer Michael Slager shot Walter Scott in the back for fleeing a traffic stop and potential arrest for missed child support, then planted evidence on him as part of a cover-up which was backed up by other officers. On Staten Island, Eric Gardner was killed in part because of an overly aggressive police response to his allegedly selling loose cigarettes. The recent killings of so many black unarmed men by police in so many different circumstances have pushed the issue of police reform onto the national agenda in a way not seen in over a generation. Is there an explosive increase in police violence? There is no question that American police use their weapons more than police in any other developed democracy. Unfortunately, we don't have fully accurate information about the number or nature of homicides at the hands of police. Despite a 2006 law requiring the reporting of this information, reauthorized in 2014, many police departments do not comply. Researchers have had to rely on independent information, such as local news stories, to cobble together numbers. One effort by The Guardian and Washington Post documented 1,100 deaths in 2014, 
991 in 2015 and 1,080 in 2016. Fewer than in the 1960s and 1970s, but still far too many. African-Americans are disproportionately victims of police shootings. Black teens are up to 21 times more likely than white teens to be killed by police, though these rates are often proportional to the race of gun offenders and shooting victims more broadly. Racial profiling remains widespread, and many communities of color experience invasive and disrespectful policing. The recent cases of Ferguson and North Charleston are hardly outliers. Blacks and Latinos are overwhelmingly the targets of low-level police interactions, from traffic tickets to searches to arrests for minor infractions, and frequently report being treated in a hostile and degrading manner despite having done nothing wrong. In New York City, 80 to 90 percent of those targeted for such interactions are people of color. This form of policing is based on a mindset that people of color commit more crimes and therefore must be subjected to harsher police tactics. Police argue that residents in high crime communities often demand police action. What is left out is that these communities also ask for better schools, parks, libraries and jobs, but these services are rarely provided. They lack the political power to obtain real services and support to make their community safer and healthier. The reality is that middle class and wealthy white communities will put a stop to the constant harassment and humiliation meted out by police and communities of color, no matter the crime rate. Those who question the police or their authority are frequently subjected to verbal threats and physical attacks. In 2012, young Harlem resident Alvin Cruz, who had been repeatedly stopped and searched by police without justification, taped an encounter with police in which he questioned the reason for the stop. In response, the police officer cursed at him, twisted his arm behind his back, and said, quote, Dude, I'm going to break your fucking arm. Then I'm going to punch you in the fucking face. End quote. Even wealthy and more powerful people of color are not immune. In 2009, Harvard professor and PBS personality Henry Louis Gates Jr. was arrested by Cambridge police in his own home. He had lost his keys and the neighbor had called the police to report a break in. The incident prompted President Obama to state, quote, I think it's fair to say, number one, any of us would be pretty angry. Number two, that the Cambridge police acted stupidly in arresting somebody when there was already proof that they were in their own home. And number three, what I think we know separate and apart from this incident is that there's a long history in this country of African-Americans and Latinos being stopped by law enforcement disproportionately, end quote. Part of the problem stems from a, quote, warrior mentality, end quote. Police often think of themselves as soldiers in a battle with the public rather than guardians of public safety. That they are provided with tanks and other military grade weapons, that they that many are military veterans and that militarized units like Special Weapons and Tactics, SWAT, proliferated during the 1980s war on drugs and post 9-11 war on terror only fuels this perception as well as a belief that entire communities are disorderly, dangerous, suspicious, and ultimately criminal. When this happens, police are too quick to use force. Excessive use of force, however, is just the tip of the iceberg of over-policing. There are currently more than 2 million Americans in prison or jail and another 4 million on probation or parole. Many have lost the right to vote. Most will have severe difficulties in finding work upon release and will never recover from the lost earnings and work experience. 
Many have had their ties to their families irrevocably, irrevocably damaged and have been driven into more serious and violent criminality. Excuse me. Despite numerous well-documented cases of false arrest and convictions, the vast majority of these arrests and convictions have been conducted lawfully and according to proper procedure, but their effects on individuals and communities are incredibly destructive. And that brings us to a changing of the theme within this chapter. The first thing that stands out to me reading this is the, the murders, the national murders by police that when I hear their names now, remind me of local murders by police. When I hear the name Tamir Rice, who was shot by a police officer in Ohio, the young, a, a child who had a, a toy gun in a, in a playground in a park, who police officers pulled up, shot him within seconds, and then wouldn't allow his sister to, to go to him as he was dying. That makes me think of uh, Logan Bell, who was an 18-year-old having a mental health crisis, whose grandmother called for help for him, called the police to help him. And the police, and he had a, a toy gun, a BB gun as well, which they were alerted. Was a toy gun? Was a BB gun? Three police officers came to a scene that he was at. He shot the BB gun, uh, and then the police officers shot him 16 times. Uh, shot him. He was shot three times in the face. It was said that the police officers stood over him as they were shooting him. Uh, None of those officers were penalized. None of those officers had charges brought against them. They went on a paid leave and then returned to work. This happened in 2012 in Rockford. And when it says here, because an officer's first instinct was to shoot. Again, that makes me think of uh, the uh, since 1990 in Rockford, Illinois. 50 times deadly force has been used in the area in the in, by law enforcement in the area. When I should say Winnebago County, over 15 times, 50 times uh, deadly force has been used by law enforcement in the area. And that's because so often their first instinct is to shoot. Uh, that's because so often their mental illness is misunderstood. As was pointed out here about Anthony Hill in Atlanta, Antonio Zambrano Montez in Pascal, California, and Jason Harris in Dallas. Kerry Blake was having a mental health crisis inside of his home. Police essentially raided his home and murdered him in his home. Uh, Mark Barmore was having a mental health crisis when the police chased him into a church and killed him in a church in front of children. And so that, that first paragraph just makes me think when they name these different names, makes me think of the names that are na of na national headlines that remind me of local headlines. And I think that's one of the things that's also important about building up a, a consciousness in the community that you're from is knowing the connections between the stories that have gained national national attention and the connections that they have with stories that you may have experienced locally that have not received that same national attention. Uh, and then when it's when it points out this statistic that African Americans are disproportionately victims of police shootings, black teens are up to 21 times more likely than white teens to be killed by police. And and I think that another thing that they stated is that these rates are often proportional to the race of gun offenders and shooting victims more broadly. And that is something that we've pointed out through all, throughout all our readings from Have Black Lives Ever Mattered all the way now to the end of policing is the specter of violence that black people and people of color exist in 
or exist under in this society, in this country, and how a lot of those things happen because of the fact that they are black, because of the fact that they are people of color. If these same statistics were applicable to white people, well, they would never be applicable to white people. But if for somehow they did become applicable to white people, you would see a mass outcry for change. And that's something that he points out here, too, that if the things that were experienced in these neighborhoods of color were in these uh, poor working class neighborhoods would be ex- to be experienced in middle class and wealthy white neighborhoods that they wouldn't stand for it. No matter what crime rate was was going on, you're not going to be able to go to Beverly Hills and start writing in the homes like we heard read about in Cabrini Green, no matter how much high the crime rate might go to. Uh, uh, racial profiling then pointing out racial profiling that's something that is again one of the the more talked about issues that exist within police terrorism the type of trauma that racial profiling gives to people uh, here in Rockford Illinois you are three times as likely to be pulled over by police officers if you're black as opposed to being white and there is 60% more white people. There's 60%, there's a 60% increase in white people as compared to black people in the city. Uh, there's three times as many white people here than it is black people, and black people get pulled over three times as often as white people get pulled over by the Rockford Police Department. And again, that just goes to point out that, you know, people are not getting pulled over because they're, because of, because they're committing crime or because of the crime rate they're being pulled over because they're black and because they're being targeted to be pulled over because they're black of course you the numbers begin to justify uh to somebody who is wants justification the pulling over of black people if you pull over three times as many black people as you do white people on an everyday basis and it's something that has been noted as a as a, a historical fact that black people and white people there's not a a heavy differential in in drug use from white people to black people or crime in white people to black people. But if you are targeting specifically black people, your numbers will begin to reflect that more black people are committing more crime, not because they actually are committing more crime, but because you are uh, catching them and convicting them and arresting them at a higher rate because of how much attention is being uh, shown on them. and then here we hear about Henry Louis Gates Jr. being pulled over by the police department and President Obama's response to that. And that makes me think about have black lives ever mattered? I believe that was a story that was uh, spoken about. And I think maybe even one other thing that we read, may we may have spoken about that experience. But again, to me, that story just points out how simply being this idea of black excellence or this idea of having if you make enough money or get enough good enough of a job or even move far enough away from certain areas that all of a sudden you'll be liberated. All of a sudden you'll be able to escape the negative aspects that come with being black in this society. And time and time and again, it's proven that that's not true or, or the, the myth that president Obama being erected ended racism in America, or was a proof that racism in America didn't exist anymore. And this is just a, a highlighting a Harvard professor being arrested inside of his own home because of racial profiling highlights how false that notion is. And then here we we read about the fact that people in communities of color, people in poor and working class communities deal with a a harsher type of tactics from police. 
They deal with more disrespect from police. And even though because of the type of crimes and the type of violence that exists in those communities, there are people in those communities who who ask for police support or are people in those communities who ask uh, for help with dealing with the issues that exist there. We have also read in multiple different pieces of literature how in coordination with asking for that, they ask for better schools, they ask for better parks, for better libraries, for better jobs, and they're never given those other services. The only thing that they're given is a heavier hand from the police. And I, I just think that that's one of the things that's what has to be that has to be a response that you have hardwired in your mind when speaking about these things with people, because there are people in these communities who ask for police, uh, heavier police presence, who ask for police to arrest drug dealers or arrest people who have done shootings. But they also have children that they ask to have better opportunities at school, who they ask to have uh, better parks to go to or safer parks to go to, cleaner parks to go to, cleaner neighborhoods to go to. And we've read about the neglect that is uh, given in the in the latter uh, request. Reforms. Any effort to make policing more just must address the problems of excessive force, over-policing, and disrespect for the public. Much of the public debate has focused on new and enhanced training, diversifying the police, and embracing community policing as strategies for reform, along with enhanced accountability measures. However, most of these reforms fail to deal with the fundamental problems inherent to policing. Training. The videotaped death of Eric Garner for allegedly selling loose cigarettes immediately spurred calls for additional training of officers in how to use force in making arrests. Officers were accused of using a prohibited chokehold and of failing to respond to his pleas that he couldn't breathe. In response, Mayor Bill de Blasio and Police Commissioner William Braddon announced that all New York Police Department officers would undergo additional use of force training so that they could make arrests in the future in ways that were less likely to result in serious injury, as well as training in methods to de-escalate conflicts and more effectively communicate with the public. Such training ignores two important factors in Garner's death. The first is the officer's casual disregard for his well-being, ignoring his cries of, quote, I can't breathe, end quote, and their seeming indifferent reaction to his near lifelessness while awaiting an ambulance. This is a problem of values and seems to go to the heart of the claim that, for too many police, black lives don't matter. The second is, quote, broken windows, end quote, style policing, which targets low-level infractions for intensive, invasive, and aggressive enforcement. This theory was first laid out in 1982 by criminologists James Q. Wilson and George Kelling. They presented existing behavioral research that showed that when a car is left unattended on a street, it is usually left alone. But if just one window of the car is broken, the car is quickly vandalized. The lesson, failure to indicate care and maintenance will unleash people's latent destructive tendencies. Therefore, if cities want to establish or maintain crime-free neighborhoods, they must take action to ensure that residents feel the pressure to conform to civilized norms of public behavior. The best way to accomplish this is to use police to remind people in subtle and not so subtle ways that disorderly, unruly and antisocial behavior are unacceptable. When this doesn't happen, people's baser instincts will take hold and predatory behavior will reign in a return to a Hobbesian, quote, war of all against all, end quote. 
The emergence of this theory in 1982 was tied to a larger arc of urban neoconservative thinking going back to the 1960s. Wilson's former mentor and collaborator, Edward Banfield, a close associate of neoliberal economist Milton Friedman at the University of Chicago, parented many of the ideas that came to make up the new conservative consensus on cities. In his seminal 1970 work, The Unheavenly City, Banfield argues that the poor are trapped in a culture of poverty that makes them largely immune to government assistance. Quote, although he has more leisure than almost anyone, the indifference, apathy if one prefers, of the lower class person is such that he seldom makes even the simplest repairs to the place that he lives in. He is not troubled by dirt or dilapidation, and he does not mind the inadequacy of public facilities such as schools, parks, hospitals and libraries. Indeed, where such things exist, he may destroy them by carelessness or even by vandalism. End quote. Unlike Banfield, who in many ways championed the abandonment of cities, Wilson decried the decline of urban areas. Along with writers like Fred Siegel, Wilson pointed at the twin threats of failed liberal leadership and the supposed moral failings of African-Americans. All three of them argued that liberals had unwittingly unleashed urban chaos by undermining the formal social control mechanisms that made the city living possible. By supporting the more radical demands of the latter urban expressions of the civil rights movement, they had so weakened the police, teachers and other government forces of behavioral regulation that chaos came to reign. Wilson, following Banfield, believed strongly that there were profound limits on what government could do to help the poor. Financial investment in them would be squandered. New services would go unused or be destroyed. They would continue in their slothful and destructive ways. Since the root of the problem was either an essentially moral or cultural failure or a lack of external controls to regulate inherently destructive human urges, the solution had to take the form of punitive social control mechanisms to restore order and neighborhood stability. Wilson's views were informed by a borderline racism that emerged as a mix of biological and cultural explanations for the, quote, inferiority, end quote, of poor blacks. Wilson co-authored the book Crime and Human Nature with Richard Herrnstein, which argued that there were important biological determinants of criminality. While race was not one of the core determinants, language about IQ and body type opened the door to a kind of sociobiology that led Herrnstein to co-author the openly racist The Bell Curve with Charles Murray, who was also a close associate of Wilson. What was needed to stem this tide of declining civility, they argued, was to empower the police to not just fight crime, but to become agents of moral authority on the streets. The new role for the police was to intervene in the quotidian disorders of urban life that contributed to the sense that, quote, anything goes, end quote. The broken windows theory magically reverses the well-understood casual relationship between crime and poverty, arguing that poverty and social disorganization are the result, not the cause, of crime, and that the disorderly behavior of the growing, quote, underclass, end quote, threatens to destroy the very fabric of cities. Okay, I want to have a small reflection here. This is going to be a second before we get to changing the theme in this chapter. But what stands out to me is, and we read about this in Women, Race, and Class, 
by Angela Y. Davis. And that is the this racist notion of black culture or you might if they may put it as poor culture or the culture in, in poverty or uh, that it's a cultural issue that's leading to this violence or cultural issue that's leading to leading to this crime. And that and, and the to me one of the biggest reasons why it's clear that that's not true because if that was the case then every black commu- every community that was disproportionately black would have the same uh, type of crime and have the same type of social issues emanating from them and you can find middle class black neighborhoods up uh, or neighborhoods that have a, a overwhelming amount of black people in them that are, are middle class that don't have the same issues that exist in neighborhoods that have a a disproportionate amount of black people in them that are uh, poor. Uh, And so this is something that crime is something that is, cannot be removed from poverty. Uh, The idea that somebody wants to sell drugs or the idea that somebody wants to be in a gang or the idea that somebody uh, wants to carry a gun simply because they're black or simply because they're uh, poor is something that I think is erroneous. It is the type of conditions that exist for people who are poor in this society that leads to that. It's the fact that people who are poor in this society uh, tend to have, uh, not even tend, people who are poor in this society have a less equitable avenues for education. And I think that that's where a lot of these things start at is that when somebody is properly educated, they understand the they understand the the pitfalls that are set up for them. They understand uh, ways to overcome those things. Uh, You can't separate somebody's. I want to be careful with the word I choose because this intelligence and intellect takes all types of different forms. Uh, and when I say education, I don't simply just mean uh, book smart or simply just mean uh, graduating from high school or graduate going to school. Uh, there's a lot more things that go into education, in my opinion. Uh, and one, and okay, let's. I guess I should say it like this: one of the things that we we read about in high risers was the fact that it was a time in the black community where if you were black you had to live in a certain place you couldn't you could not move out you couldn't live in different areas and so what often happened is that the black doctors and the black lawyers and black people who maybe have been would have been uh, closer to middle class were living right next to the black people who were uh, closer to lower class or who were uh, poor or who were unemployed and those children were going to school together and the black teachers could only teach at the black schools. The black kids could only go to the black schools. And so one of the things that came with that is that the people who were a little bit better off could uh, pull up the people who were le- who weren't as well off uh, that the the type of environment that existed in the middle class black home could rub off on the environment that existed in the lower class or the, the poor working class black home. And that was one of the things when they talked about not having a concentration of poverty in the high rises book that we read uh, and, and talking about mixed income living. That was one of the things that they thought could be beneficial. And so when when people when we read here that they're trying to say that 
it's not the poverty that leads to the crime. It's the crime that leads to the poverty, that it's not the uh, poverty and crime that creates a culture, that it's the culture that creates the poverty and crime. It's just backwards to any historical uh, fact that or any historical any historical fact that or precedent that has been set. And I just think that that's something that I, I, I had to sort of rebut. And I don't know if I'm rebutting that in the, the best way. Uh, but that's just something that I felt the need to try to speak about. And, and self-determination, I think that's another thing that I will, will point out, is that we read about in High Risers how the building that was doing the best, the building that was kept up the best, that was uh, when it was time for demolition, that was... Uh, it was the building that people who lived inside the building have been given the opportunity to manage the building. It was the building where self-determinants have been allowed for the occupants. It was the building where uh, it was not white outsiders making the decisions for these people or political outsiders making the decisions for these people. It was people inside the building. It was people dealing with these issues, making these decisions uh, about how to combat them and deal with them. And as we're reading through here, these men who are writing this, Fred Siegel and Edward Banfield and, uh, James Q. Wilson, George Kelling, these are people who had not dealt with these issues personally that they were writing about and that they were speaking on. And it's always, in my opinion, uh, backwards to have somebody who has never dealt with the 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 residual effects of the problem be the one espousing the solution. Okay. <laughs> Broken windows policing is a is at root a deeply conservative attempt to shift the burden of responsibility for declining living conditions onto the poor themselves and to argue that the solutions to all social ills is increasingly aggressive, invasive, and restrictive forms of policing that involve more arrests, more harassment, and ultimately more violence. As inequality continues to increase, so will homelessness, the public disorder, and as long as people continue to embrace the use of police to manage disorder, we will see a continual increase in the scope of police power and authority at the expense of human and civil rights. The order to arrest Eric Garner came from the very top echelons of the department in response to complaints from local merchants about illegal cigarette sales. Treating this as a crime requiring the deployment of a special plainclothes unit, two sergeants and uniformed backups seems excessive and pointless. Garner had experienced over a dozen previous police contacts in similar circumstances, including stints in jail. This had done nothing to change his behavior or improve his or the community's circumstances. No amount of procedural training will solve this fundamental flaw in public policy. Many advocates also call for cultural sensitivity trainings designed to reduce racial and ethnic bias. A lot of this training is based on the idea that most people have at least some unexamined stereotypes and biases that they are not consciously aware of, but that influence their behavior. Controlled experiments consistently show that people are quicker and more likely to shoot at a black target than a white one in simulations. Training such as, quote, fair and impartial policing, end quote, use role playing and simulations to help officers see and consciously adjust for these biases. Diversity and multicultural training is not a new idea, nor is it terribly effective. Most officers have already been through some form of diversity training and tend to describe it as politically motivated, feel-good programming divorced from the realities of street policing. 
Researchers have found no impact on problems like racial disparities in traffic stops or marijuana arrests. Both implicit and explicit bias remain, even after targeted and intensive training. This is not necessarily because officers remain committed to their racial biases, though this can be true, but because institutional pressures remain intact. And to me, that that just I want to say that that is why we speak about the issue of police terrorism as being an institutional issue, not an individual issue. That's why it's not it doesn't when people talk about all cops are not bad or it's only a few bad apples. That is a straw man's argument, because the issue is not about just a few bad cops or needing more good cops. The issue is about the policies that these police officers are following. It's about the procedures that they follow. It's about the uh, the the way that these laws are structured. It's about uh, those things. And those things have nothing to do with being a good cop or a bad cop. Uh, the people that you proclaim that we and we've seen this happen multiple times where the people that they that they will tell you are good cops. They do nothing to stop the bad cops when the bad cops are enacting the bad cop action. Uh, the people who are good cops are still uh, arrested people and char- and people were charged. Good cops still during when the crack laws came down and you if you had crack, you would be charged or get 100 times basically more uh, time in prison than somebody who had uh, powder cocaine and it was uh, no way to even try to make any type of claim that this had nothing to do with race. Uh, those good cops still arrested the black people and charged them uh, with possession of crack cocaine and destroyed their lives in a way that they were not arresting white people for powder cocaine. Uh, the good cop was still when marijuana was illegal in different uh, in, in all these states were still arresting people and destroying people's lives for marijuana because of what their policy and procedure stated them do. And now in, in state like Illinois, where I'm from and multiple other states out there, marijuana has now been uh, decriminalized and 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 legalized in in, in in a lot of states. And so it's clear if it's something has now been legalized that it did not pose the harm and the danger and the threat that it was proclaimed to pose when people were being arrested and, and convicted and having their lives destroyed over it. But those police officers still did their job by following policy and procedure. Uh, and so it's an institutional issue, not an individual issue when it comes to policing. Uh, let me see where we're at here on time. All right, we're on about we're at about thirty five minutes, so we're going to go ahead and wrap this episode up, and then we will be back tomorrow with another episode of Route for Reading Daily, and we will continue reading uh, the End of Policing by Alex S. Vitale. All right, share this on whatever platform you're listening to it on, and remember we put these episodes out on a daily basis to present people the opportunity to begin and further their journey in the struggle to end police terrorism, mass incarceration, and racial injustice. Talk to you tomorrow.